Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 15. Uh, I'm John, executive producer here at Final Show Films and at Johnny Bates on Twitter. And with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And this week we're talking about Critical Role Episode 16, Enter Vassalheim. This week our episode is starring Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as, as Vexalia, uh, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Leo O'Brien as Vaxil Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, and Travis Willingham as Grog, and as always, well, as mostly, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Um, previously on Critical Role, Vox Machina, their in, the in, intrepid band of adventurers, misfits, and whatever you must call them, uh, completed an adventure through the Underdark, a very dangerous, cavernous place underground. After completing this Underdark challenge, they discovered and managed to extract an evil artifact known as the Horn of Orcus that held great power and seemingly has a partner somewhere in the world unknown. But the one they've acquired is indestructible as far as people around them know and should be sealed away. Hopefully forgotten for the rest of eternity. The best place to do so came up in conversation to be the city of Vasselheim, which is on a different continent far to the northwest of Taldore, uh, the kingdom in which most of the story to this point has taken place, uh, to be sealed in what is referred to as the Platinum Sanctuary, the oldest existing temple to Bahamut, the good Platinum Dragon Deity. So, they were given passage on a skyship to cross the Osmet Sea to Athanzia, the continent that houses the capital city of Vasselheim. Uh, the group gathered together, rode in, onto a magical elevated skyship, and traversed the ocean, carrying the Horn of Orcus within its holy container. Over the ocean, they found themselves attacked by a band of wyvern and griffin-riding bandits. Uh, the battle took place on top of the skyship, some of the magic being taken out, a few lives lost, but the party managed to persevere, taking it captive and continuing on their journey. The Horn of Orcus and its container kept safe. Uh, and so, as we begin, uh, uh, as we begin, uh, they have just recently captured a prisoner, and I don't quite remember, and this thing doesn't tell me precisely if they decided to interrogate her immediately or lock her in a hold. Uh, they... If they interrogated they, her at all. God damn it. No, they don't they, interrogate her. No, they pretty much locked her in like, a hold. Um, yeah. And then it, it was like a – it was described as a magic repulsion hold. Basically, she wasn't able to gonna be able to cast any spells down there because she was a mage of some sort yeah. um, or a storm wizard or, or storm sorcerer or something. Um, but yeah, and I don't think they really interrogated her all that much, or if they did, it didn't really come into play hardly at all. And I they seem just left to recall. Yeah, basically, I seem to recall they threw her in the brig and forgot about her. Kind of, they did. No, I feel. Uh, yeah. Anyway. No. Get something. I. This is really sad. I literally just watched the episode. Ended three hours ago, um, but which tells you how memorable this character is. Um, I, I feel like there was some sort of, once they, once they docked on, in, uh, Vasselheim, some sort of like, you're, you're, you seem some kind of deal struck with the captain of the, of the ship. 
Yeah, it felt to me like a character <clears throat> for which that, that kind of was serving as sort of a plot hook uh, for them to potentially find, a, you know, get some other information regarding who these people were. But I think they were told that sky bandits or sky pirates are fairly common uh, threat to sky ships, and mm-hmm. then they just yeah, forgot like that. Like that the person existed. Um, it was one of those one of those plot hooks that was dangled and ignored. Um, which, happens. which which happens, yeah. Which which happens, especially in D and D games, um, especially in long running D and D games. Right. Uh, yeah. From a more narrative perspective, they can serve even if it's even if it's a something that is brought in as part of a story, and it's not a hook that's followed all the way to its root. Uh, it can serve as a very good a way to expand the universe a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to hunt down every NPC and figure out every aspect of their backstory. Sometimes just having somebody walk by is enough to show that there's more here than you're just interacting with during the main plot, and that can that can fill in gaps and make make a, make an environment feel a lot more realistic and inclusive. Yeah, and a character like this who gets who who gets basically left with the authorities in one way or another. If you want to bring them back at a later date, they make a great returning villain. Um, yeah, and then at the moment that you realize who it was and where he came from, there's a nice nostalgia boost of oh, remember back when when that happened, that character that we just barely remembered. Oh shit, this is a problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, this for the most part, this was kind of a throwaway character. I feel mm-hmm. um, there wasn't really much to her. I I, I don't know how Not I remember it was a female, but I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So after spending a few days aboard the ship, uh, Tiberius again brings up the idea of swapping accessories with Scanlan. Uh, yes, they uh, basically they they uh, Tiberius has a uh, a iron stone and wants to trade it for what was it? Circle of concentration. Mm-hmm. Yes, circle of concentration. Um, Tiberius wants to min max. Yeah, basically, and I don't remember how he convinces him. He uses a chalkboard and math. Yeah, I think he like honestly it felt bores Scanlan to death. That's sort of what it feels like. It feels like Scanlan is like, I realize that you're trying to scam me here, but I'm okay with it. I would rather this not turn into a situation because we just spent the last episode or the episode before fighting for like the first 45 minutes. So here, have a magical right. item for the magical item you don't have much use for. Yeah, no, I feel like from Scanlan's perspective, he was just trolling Tiberius and not giving him what he wanted because he was power. He was empowered enough to not give him what he wanted. But when it became annoying to not give him what he wanted, then he was like, okay, fine, you can have it. The, yeah. It's, it's no more fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, which, which sort of brings up the question of using annoyance as a tactic for getting your way, uh-huh. uh, which is a very interesting character trait, one that Tiberius has yet to implement until now. Um, Another one uh, to add to his Oso group of, of fan-appealing traits. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, that that there there are there is a there is a subtype of characters who use being annoying as a way to get their as as a way to get their way, um, like characters like Iago, for instance, not 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 Iago from the Shakespearean play, but Iago from Disney's Aladdin. I was gonna uh, say, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Uh, uh, uses different Iagos. Uses uses his uh, I I I explained it. Uh, uses his sort of very annoying personality to get away from danger all the time, um, and it, it's sort of a it's it's a defensive mechanism for a lot of characters as a way of like if I'm really super annoying, they don't want to keep me around, so I'm not in danger when the time comes. Typically, these characters uh, meet gruesome and ironically appropriate deaths, but. Uh, in in Tiberius's case, it's it's a it's a case of a character who uh, may not be fully aware of how annoying they are, may instead uh, think that they are very quite clever and intelligent, and that their intelligence is what's swinging people over, and not the annoying aspect. Yeah, that's the thing is it works fine for Iago or for for Iago. Iago's a bad guy. He's somebody we're supposed to not like. Yeah, <laughs> Tiberius is ostensibly a protagonist. Ostensibly, yeah, and it's perfectly fine to have to have protagonists with unlikable characteristics. Yes, because no, absolutely, because that makes them somewhat grounded in reality, as opposed to you know the sort of Mary Sue kind of thing that I'm yeah. sure most of our listeners have at least heard of from time to time. Have um, we ever gone but, over what a Mary Sue is? We haven't delineated it per se well, because I mean, there seems, are none like in this <laughs> in this program <laughs> this seems like a good opportunity to talk about that um, okay so a mary sue i don't remember where the term was coined i don't it's know it's coined from fan fiction it. yep um but um a mary sue is a type of character who within the universe not necessarily not necessarily amongst the people reading or the people taking in the literature but within the universe itself uh, are unable to do wrong, universally liked, uh, unable to lose, unable to, or if they do lose, it's only very temporarily and is merely a temporary setback unto their unto their eventual success. Um, nothing ever really goes wrong for them. They might have a tragic backstory, but the tragic backstory is more encouragement than crippling anxiety yeah. or depression. Right. Generally um, occurring in fan fiction as a trope of the author basically kind of a wish fulfillment sort yeah. of yeah yeah typically it's author characters right mm. um uh the 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 most famous uh the, the the most famous mary sue uh in uh popular fiction uh being superman um, <laughs> tell me i'm wrong Okay, you're thought. coming from somebody who actually <laughs> hates the who hates the character of Superman, so it's really hard for me to disagree with you. I would disagree, but that's on, also storytelling the... it from a different time, right? Yeah, yeah. that's and not. It... Yes, it is. It, it to be is, clear, but not to in be clear, the derogatory way. To be clear, when I refer to Superman as a Mary Sue, I refer to the mid early. 80s and 80s Superman uh, that spontaneously could purchase new superpowers as the moods as the mood affected him. Oh, he's always um, been able to do that. And 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 sort of as the story required. Uh, I think springs to mind uh, his ability to make miniature duplicates of himself that came out of nowhere and is still canon. By the way, I would say. <laughs> 
I would say if we're talking about the about the term as a derogatory, the most famous would have to be Bella Swan. Yeah. Bella yeah. Swan is the perfect Mary Sue example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more as a general because it doesn't necessarily have to be a derogatory term. In the case of Superman, I, I like Superman. Like I, I, Superman is one of my favorite superheroes, but he is that invincible, unbeatable, will always come back, will always win, with few exceptions, um, type of character that, that rarely is anything ever really a challenge for him. The difference, um, I think, between what, what, does, what keeps him from being a Mary Sue is Mary Sue characters are very shallow in terms of psyche and emotions. Superman is not. No, and that's fair. Uh, but then um, there are, that's there are where, other characters that's what keeps that, him from being that. Trope. There, there, there are other characters for which that can be argued for and against. Uh, your yeah. guys' favorite Mary Sue is Thristu Arzen, um, whom whom I happen to find to be a very compelling character, but it tastes different. I wouldn't even necessarily. He's again. I I, I wouldn't call. Him, I I dislike him. Yes, um, but. <laughs> I wouldn't call him a Mary Sue because there is no personal author insertion. Like a Mary Sue character, you can very strongly hear the author's personal voice in there. I, f- I, w- I would I, agree. I would agree with that statement on on the okay. concept. Yeah, I would feel. I f- I always felt like Drist was a character who his biggest flaw as a character is that he kept having books getting written about him. <laughs> the first the first two trilogies he's amazing he is well written he's well rounded he's not overpowered the the threats to him are realistic yes he has some of the elements of a mary sue the tragic backstory the i'm so special i'm the drow living above ground um, um uh, that sort of the, thing the, the, the good animal pet with, <laughs> the animal pet the goodly drow with purple eyes that yes. do wields twin scimitars and can like, change longbow. I would, I would say, armor. I would say that he flirts with the line a little bit because you do get the author voice on occasion, very rarely in the narrative. Very rarely in the narrative, just in those random ass essay, essays that he writes at the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> yes. Yeah, his, his 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 personal diary, right? Um. Yeah, so yeah, a little he's, bit. He's I close. Guess. He's close he's to the close line, to the if line. not across it. Right. But he's more. He is more of an example to me of the the solid action, solid to good action hero who was killed by sequelitis. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's it's important to bring up these types of characters because, be, like I said earlier, being a Mary Sue isn't necessarily a bad thing, or having aspects of that Mary Sue isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just that when there's no, when there's nothing more to the character than that, because, and because quite often the thing that I like about Superman in, in particular is, uh, the, the trick with Superman is not, it's not that he can solve every problem. That is what he's about. It's his perspective on solving every problem. Uh, the, the, he, he is that character who, Yes, he has infinite power, and yes, he has the ability to spontaneously create more abilities based on the author's whims. But it's 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 not so much about that as it is about his mental state 
and as it is about how he thinks about things and how he reacts to things and and, and see for me that's what keeps the links the links he will go through <clears throat> even though he knows he's going to win the links he will go through to make it as difficult for himself as possible <laughs> to me that's what keeps him from being a mary sue because i don't see mary i don't i don't the term mary sue or gary sue for male characters um, is, is heard Gary Sue. <laughs> you've never heard Gary you've Sue. You've never before? heard Gary Sue. I've only I've only heard Mary applied to male and female and other characters equally. Yeah, no, that 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 yeah, Gary Stew. Sorry, is the to me those terms are specifically only used for when it becomes a negative. Um, because yeah. you can have you can have authorial voice in your characters. You can have the you you can play with certain tropes. Your character can be the special snowflake, etc. That's what makes interesting characters. It's when you combine all of these things into a single package of um arbitrary perfection. Yes, arbitrary. A character who is written with the mindset of, I want to be in this story and I want to be cool. That it becomes... The very best. Yeah, exactly. No one ever was. I want to be the very best, but I also want to be dramatic and emo and, 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 and dating the perfect example of what I personally consider to be a, 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 romantic partner and etc 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 yeah uh i I've, I've heard it used both negatively and positively so that may be why my 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 opinion on the term is a little bit broader than that but mm-hmm. i can understand why yeah. why that would be the primary example of it yeah but no yeah because the the term originally comes from a trekkie fanfic um back in the years of 19 uh <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been well, it's kind of in Star the Star Trek. It wouldn't be that far back, right? Yeah, but it's been kind of kind of a, a continuous motif um, that is frequently levied as criticism at more or less anything that anybody doesn't like in fan fiction. Um, but it's it's still I find a fairly helpful concept to have as a writer because it's something to watch out for when yep. you yeah. consider it positive or negative. Otherwise, you're going to start uh, writing a whole bunch of ebony, darkness, dementia, ravenways, and we're all fucked. <laughs> so, ebony, <laughs> you guys know about my immortal, right? <laughs> Never mind. So, we're not going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so, sorry. Go ahead. Tiberius trades. I'll just mute uh, myself while I laugh. Uh, Keyleth lets everyone know that the Fire Tribe of the Ashari are somewhere on the continent, located in a town called Pyra, and gives a little bit more detail on the background of her and her sister tribes, reminding them that part of her journey uh, is that she's required to seek out the leaders of all the tribes of the Ashari uh, uh, to complete her armente. Vex gets the idea that when they visit them, the group should pretend to all be following Keyleth, making her leadership seem that much more impressive. Uh, she points out that the last person who went on, uh, uh, sorry, Keyleth then points out that the last person who went on the Armente did not return to her home and was her mother. Let's uh, throw up the backstory flag. Yeah. Yep. Backstory. And this is a nice bit of 
because this is backstory that we've been sort of introduced to in 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 those intros that went on for as long as they did. Um, I think, but it's still a nice going on at this episode. It's possible. The they're not. Yeah. They're not in the VODs anymore. But that's because they took those out for 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 rights reasons. Yeah. Um. But I like I like the fact that they brought some of this stuff up because they were sort of at a a a crossroads point at this point. You know, they 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 just gotten out of the underdark. Um, they had this horn that they were bringing to Vasalim, and they didn't really know what they were planning on doing next. So it was nice for for Keyleth to bring this stuff up as a potential, hey, remember this stuff. Not necessarily that we need to do this stuff next, because obviously they know the, the, that, that Matt has other stuff planned for them. But it's a nice way to bring it back up into mind for future plot seeding, and so it hasn't been so long that you completely forget what happens. It's yeah. You don't want to introduce something in the first episode of season one of your of your serial drama, and then not reference it again until like season six at the season finale, to the point that people have completely forgotten what it was. Um, so it was a nice way to do that, and it also. Through the conversation, they're able to add a little bit more detail on the Aramente, the 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 Ashari. Uh, Keelit's mom is brought into it. Um, it's sort of a, a nice way for them to bring that stuff up and and sort of foreshadow what might be coming ahead. And at this point, later actually in the episode where Tiberius talks about asks about his. Um, uh, his artifacts that he's on a quest to seek. That is another good example of that. Yeah. Uh, and this is sort of like just sort of a miniature uh, background dump for, for Keyleth. That doesn't go into too terribly much detail. Uh, just reaffirms this mission that she's on and that uh, the reason, one of the reasons why she only has one parent uh, is because of the fact that uh, the other one died doing this very same quest. Got misplaced. (laughs) Mysteriously disappeared. Mysteriously vanished, which is uh, kind of a a standardized trope for storytelling. Uh, Specifically, not necessarily in that my parents dead, although that that is also a trope. Um, (laughs) That's a D&D trope. (laughs) That's a that's well that's a that's a fantasy setting well, yes. general trope. It's a genre. It's a genre trope. Yeah, most uh, most fantasy, sci-fi horror action. Yeah, everything. most fantasy characters don't have parents, or at least no. don't have both parents. Uh, sci-fi, actually, I find in sci-fi they tend to have their they tend to be more regularly do tend to be parents. Just the parents tend to be fucked up. Um, <laughs> that is also a possibility. Um, yeah. Uh, in some some way or another, but anyways, um, and in D anD D, nobody's parents are alive, ever. Or, or at least not all of them. Uh, <laughs> Never all the, of them. And anybody who does have both of them alive, neither of them are happy. One of them's probably a villain. Yep. Which is which is why I like to I like to throw a wrench in plants and, and make characters. And you know, I, I have I at least right. one character for every setting who both of their parents are alive and perfectly happy, and it's just their son right. just decided to go out adventuring one day, and that was his dream. Not forever, <laughs> not yet. 
No, not for Eberron, no. Uh, Eberron, Eberron doesn't really... Uh, or maybe uh, you do. do you don't know. Maybe, who knows? Anyways. Um, but yeah, so if you, you want to subvert type, you know, oh, both my parents are alive and happy and still, you they, know, running they, the cobbler they, shop back in Millthorpe and everything's my, fine. My, I just happen to be out my, here right now. My father's a barber, my mother's a barmaid, and adventuring pays the bills. Um... But uh, in particular, the trope I'm talking about is actually a, a sort of a foreshadowy uh, type of deal where when you set up a mission or a quest or a thing that people do, in order to indicate how dangerous it is, there's a body count associated with it. In this case, uh, it's – Nice Lord uh, of the Rings Keyless, reference there, by the way. Keyless Mother. Yeah. Um, well, it's also – it's a Lord of the Rings. It's also a Star Wars reference because yeah, yeah. many Boffins died Christ to bring thing. us this information. Yep. Um uh, which is any time that you have to indicate how dangerous something is, you indicate how many people have died trying to do it previously or how many people died doing it previously. Uh, one does not simply walk into Mordor comes to mind for Lord of the Rings, but also uh, many Bothans died to bring us this information for Star Wars. It's a fairly regular trope through all of storytelling. And... In this particular instance, it hits home a little bit more because they, what they've done is they've married that trope to the trope of uh, one or more parents being dead in the fantasy setting. So not only is her mother Come on down here. It's two tropes missing, for the price of one. Exactly. Not only is her mother missing, but her mother went missing on a quest to show how dangerous this quest is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I find that little – whenever you can marry two tropes together I, 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 to make an interesting third version of these things, I love that. that that's one yes. of my personal favorite things in writing is when you, you – you, not, not even necessarily subverting the tropes, just connecting them in ways that they aren't normally connected. Yeah, connect yeah. them in a unique way. Um, that, that's, I love playing with tropes, uh, mostly in subversion ways, but I love playing with tropes because these are the things that, first of all, they're tropes because they work. I mean, something doesn't become a common storytelling tool unless it's something that is universal in, in, in the way that storytelling works. It's like people say there are only, there are only 36 storylines if you boil them down to the basics um it's finding how those work um so i it's a lot of fun to i really appreciate it when somebody basically creates a character who is more or less a combination of tropes but combined in such a way that it's interesting and it's not just a, a, a a lift of another character Right, or something, something that actually yeah. feels like a fresh remix, yeah. Even and, even and, a pastiche of characters is right. bad, but if you can do it in the right way. And because we here at Critical Thinking like to provide examples, we are all writers. Uh, I think my, one of my one of my personal favorite uh, versions of this is there's a there is a classic trope in fantasy stories uh, called Monster Father Beauty Mother. Uh, and it's it's it is the concept of a character typically either either actually a half breed or just from a tragic backstory where their father is a, either either legitimately a monster who impregnated their mother or is just a monsterful person uh, who impregnated their mother. Um, and basically, character... all the characters in Game of Thrones. Yeah, kind of. I have a character in which I sort of flipped that. Um, who is a, he's a half elf, half dragon, uh, 
his mother is a dragon and his father is an elf. Uh, and uh, also take the there's a trope called uh, I can't remember the exact name of it, but I often refer to it as adult as a child. Um, where where there is an el- an older character, an obviously older character who just behaves like a kid the whole time, and applied this to the monsters of father, uh, beauty as a mother uh, archetype, wherein his mother is a brass dragon, uh, and for for people who aren't familiar with the colorization personalities of dragons in D and D, the metallic dragons are good dragons, and the the chromatic dragons are bad dragons, and of the metallic dragons. Uh, brass dragons, uh, in particular, are described as being the type of dragon who will bury a person up to their neck in sand just to have a fun conversation with them so they won't run away screaming. <laughs> brass dragon uh, all the way. Yeah. So I have this character whose mother did exactly that to his father. <laughs> and through through this very weird relationship, uh, he was born, uh, where like this this elf was just wandering the woods one day and fell into a pit trap. And when he looked yeah, up, he there did. was this female brass dragon looking down at him, wanting to have a conversation. Let's uh, and so what what that does is it, it it both subverts the trope of of monster parent beauty parent in that. The monster parent is literally a creature, not a, but but inherently isn't necessarily an evil creature, uh, as opposed to just being the Game of Thrones dad, um, and then also <laughs> applying the adult as a child trope to it, mm-hmm. which is how you would take these two tropes, combine them while subverting one of them. Yep, Game uh, of Thrones dads, all of them, Game of every dads. single. Uh- one, with the exception of of, of Ned. Uh, Ned, who is an idiot. Ned Stark. Right. <laughs> I mean, Which makes him even worse. And more of just an idiot who didn't take care of his family because he decided principles were more important than provision. No, no. Yep. In, in, in that case, the mother was the monster because Kat is single-handedly responsible for the death of most of her kids. <laughs> um, but anyways... Uh, but yeah, so that, that's just an example of how you might take a trope or two, marry them together, twist one around, and make an interesting backstory that is not one of these we've heard it all before every single time stories. Uh, that's also a character whose both both of his parents are alive <laughs> because it's a it's <laughs> a brass that dragon. It's a brass dragon. Come on. I mean, yeah, uh, it would fun. be. It would be very difficult to a a for an adult brass dragon dying is hard, uh, and b for a, for an elf married to a brass dragon dying is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy is easy. It's like honey. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, continuing on with our story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, the skyship that they take uh, takes about s- uh, that has been hovering over the, the Osmond Sea for the last six days while hovering, flying over the Osmond Sea for the last six days, finally arrives in the city of Vasselheim as the skies grow darker and a light snow begins to fall. The town is heavily fortified with multiple walls in and around the city. And just to the far side of the city is a huge forest called the Vasper Timberland, which empties into a tundra to the far north. They are met by a representative of the Platinum Sanctuary who escorts them through the town. Many of the buildings are very old, and the streets are oddly only mud. For a city this size, they'd expect something a little more advanced. Uh, uh, and But they make the best of it as they trudge through the town towards the ancient temple. 
Now, I believe it is at this point that we learn a little bit about the Arcana versus Divine Magic of Vasselheim? Yes. Yes. Um, they start, like, because with Tiberius being obviously a pretty much straight arcane caster all the time and attempting to utilize that skill set that he possesses in order to ingratiate himself with the yeah. uh, local culture, he it's specifically not because, so uh, oddly uh, ends up putting uh, his foot in his mouth. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they're led to the streets by a scale bearer, Jan, um, who is the representative of the Platinum Sanctuary, and he comments on Tiberius's coloring. Uh, yep. And then Tiberian uses a, uh, I think he uses presentation to change his scale colors. No, he actually yeah. uses a spell that actually works. Oh, yeah, he uses Alter Self. <laughs> yeah, he, so, yeah, he uses Alter Self to change his, his uh, scale coloring, and in response, uh, he is told that uh, casting spells openly may not be the best thing to do. Well, I mean, do. they had basically said, this is another great Tiberius moment, because they had been talking about it beforehand. Mm hmm. Like, there had already been discussion about this, and that led into the Tiberius and and not necessarily being too keen on him because red, et cetera. And that was when he cast Elter Soul. Right. After yeah. being told that it probably wouldn't be a good idea because Tiberius. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it's reiterated, hey, we just told you probably don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So to to explain now I don't know how fully they explain it here. I don't remember how fully they explain it here, but in Vasselheim basically uh arcane oriented magic as opposed to natural or divine magic is looked down upon. And yep. do you guys recall why exactly? Partially because of the essence of the city makeup in and of itself. Vasselheim is a fundamentally religious city. It's like Mecca, Jerusalem, and Rome all piled together. Um, so you've got representatives and sort of the, the main centers of worship for the main recognized deities across Exandria. Their core centers of worship tend to be here. You've got the Raven Queen, you've got Bahamut, mm -hmm. you've got, uh, what, Kord, uh, Ayun, you know, I mean, like, all these major deities. This is the city of religion. It's also a very traditional city as well, and they reference that a little bit uh, based on, and it's a very, very old city, uh, yep. additionally. So, you know, you've got all these aspects coming together to sort of form this not necessarily uniform culture because you do have various religions and various pantheons uh, represented here. Um, but there's this sort of consensus that we are here because we are devoted to and follow our gods. Basically. And um, that makes a very conducive atmosphere for the valuing of divine magic to the almost near exclusion of every other type of magic. Druids yeah. are a little bit kind of in the gray area because they're definitely they're not quite divine either, you know, so they're they're not looked at with as much suspicion or scorn as somebody like a wizard or a sorcerer would be. So yeah. Keyless yeah. is in a little bit of a gray area. Tiberius definitely kind of bottom of the bottom of the stack here. And this is something that I always like seeing in fantasy um, uh, fantasy storytelling is the idea you're talking about magic and you're talking about uh, if 
most settings inherently that are fantasy, even if whether you're talking sword and sorcery D and D stuff or modern urban fantasy, one of the defining traits of fantasy is is magic in some way. Um, and in most of these settings, there is some kind of god, yeah. uh, 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 religious pantheon, deific presence. And when you have a setting where magic is a literal, you know it exists thing, the gods are usually very present um, and and have their own sorts of magic and powers. And I always enjoy seeing the... Um, how settings handle handle the interplay between those two concepts of those who get you know powers and magic from uh, as a conduit from their gods and those who don't. That's often a a source of conflict between the two. In some in some settings, it's not. In some settings, well, it's much more accepted. A lot of D and D settings tend to have an acknowledge okay well you use magic and 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 you get your magic from the gods and that's fine both exist both are fine and then you have well, places like vasselheim or and even to even to dig down deeper one of my favorite instances of this is is um going even further you know my uh into the the minutia of it but not just what type of magic do you wield, but from where do you draw it? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my one of my one of my favorite uh, sort of clashes of ideologies is the sorcerer versus the wizard. Uh, the idea of these these two polar opposites of the same type of magic, where a wizard draws their magic from the ether and the air and the elements around them, and thus anybody can become a wizard if they study hard enough. A sorcerer draws their magic from their core, from something about them that is particularly special and mm-hmm. unique. Uh, and so it's not something that anybody can do, and no two sorcerers are alike. Yeah, um, and narratively, this fits in as a substitute for, uh, in a lot of situations, for what exists in the modern world in uh, our the real world between uh, um, uh, the, between different religions. Um, and, whereas, and, sorry, go ahead. And also, uh, even taking it out of that, it can also stand for, especially in the the wizard-sorcerer version, it stands for the argument of uh, inborn talent versus hard work. Yes. Um, And a a lot of those conflicts, same thing. You you can find it in arcane versus divine, or you can find it in magic versus technology. Or magic versus science is a is a very common trope. In, and if you guys uh, want a book series stuff. that covers like the entire gamut of that shit, check out the Dresden Files. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is so much in there as far as where you pull your magic from and what that does to you as an individual, or yep. how you become yep. evolved. And- you know, whether it's arcane magic from your more traditional wizard style you've got fairy magic coming from those bug fuck crazy people you've got literal like knights of the sword who have these blades that have one of the mm-hmm. nails of christ's crucifixion inlaid into it and so that's like hardcore divine magic you've got demons you got you know and it's just 
it's it's a free for all. But it's a yeah. lot of fun. And it, and <laughs> and, one, uh, I don't know if I've I don't know if I've referenced it on this show before, but I know I've talked to you as the saga of recluse, um, which uh, is uh, talks about not only uh, where do you draw your magic from, but what do you do with it in this sort of battle of order versus chaos, and also it, it also gives a kind of spoilery, but it's a really old book series. If you read it and saying this isn't really going to spoil it if you haven't read it yet, um, but also about how at a certain level technology becomes indistinguishable from magic and then people start fighting over where does your magic come from when they all come from the same source. Yep. Uh, which sort of the, 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 the per, your perspective on the same thing uh, mm-hmm. related to what you, where you get your magic from and what you do with yeah. it, which – my favorite also example is actually um, another role-playing game, Mage of the Ascension. <laughs> Mage is the perfect example of, of, of this battle of beliefs because you have, you have science versus technology, you have uh, or science versus magic. Within magic, you have every, every, all the traditions, all of the different groups are fragmented by their belief system when ultimately they're doing the same thing, but some refer to it as magic from the gods. Some refer to it as blood magic or uh, um, uh, uh, hacking the web, Uh, all these different things. It is a very rich thematic ground that you can explore um, whether, whether you're going that level of expansive with it or just simply the conflict like it is in, in Vasselheim of, you know, we know that arcane magic is a thing, but we don't trust it. So don't practice it. And just in case any listeners get confused, because I know uh, Jeremy would murder me if I didn't make this uh, distinction. He's talking about Mage the Ascension, not Mage yes. the Awakening. Those Mage the Ascension. <laughs> Fuck Mage the Awakening. Magic does not call, all come from Atlantis. Moving on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, that, and with with that reference going over everybody's heads, um, except Jeremy and me. Yep. Uh, and the three Yon people like about, the awakening. Uh, uh, Yon talks about Tiberius's coloring. He changes it, then gets yelled at. Keyleth changes into an eagle form, and Vex hops across the roofs as the group makes their way through the muddy streets. People to see take notice, but don't really gawk at the box itself. Most are a little shocked to see a dragonborn and a Goliath walking around, assuming the box contains something of value. Uh, arriving at the sanctuary, it appears that uh, to have newer sections added in the form of larger towers. The main part of the building, more properly called a fortress, is likely a thousand years old. Keyleth makes a few passes around the top, taking in all that she can. She's, she sees a few lo- of the local militia. Hey, everybody. Uh, you may have noticed a skip in the audio there. Uh, our recording bot decided to take a vacation temporarily. so We need better interns, uh, John. We, he we fucked to, off. <laughs> we had to we had to wrangle him back in and and yeah. Uh, so, uh I was at a part in this description. Ah, yes. Uh, yes Keyleth just saw some local military. Made a few passion, made a few passes around the sanctuary, taking it in. Uh, and as she did, she saw a few members of the local militia called Bastions, wearing all sorts of armor and carrying weapons of various types and designs. No real uniform amongst them, except for a more color scheme type of thing. Yeah, I think they uh, all wear like the same 
fairly ornate tabard, but as far as gear goes, it's kind yeah. of kind of slapdash and. She also notices trees moving in a forest and moves in that direction as the group enters the temple. Uh, as her eagle eyes focus, she sees something massive and serpentine-like moving through the trees as Bastion's low ballista bolts and, and uh, let fly. Uh, one of them striking true as the beast screeches and heads deeper in the woods. She then turns back around, sort of giving a, giving a little bit of a foreshadowing as to the beasts that lurk outside the walls of Vasselheim. We Kansas anymore, kids. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, she swoops back around and flies to the temple, landing on an arrow slit and changing back as she steps through. She's then met with a spear tip and a pair of guards, not expecting her there. This is the first time we get Keyleth arrested. <laughs> Apparently, now, she already has a reputation in it in previous games. Yes, because episodes, the, re- but... the reaction is again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, Keyleth uh, does things that get her arrested fairly often. Uh, this is this is a this. This, this too, is a character trope, um, although not intentional in this case, uh, of uh, characters who are so unfamiliar with polite society, we shall say, that they constantly do things that just happenstance to break the law. Sometimes it's case, because they're uninformed. Sometimes it's because they just have terrible luck and end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes they just have a suspicious look. But yeah, and mo- and sometimes it's just because they're not paying attention, which is right. exactly what happened this time yep. as Keyleth trespassed in the sanctuary. Hmm. Rather than the, the the best, so so this is one of my favorite things about Keyleth, and this will come up a lot over the course of these things is. She always makes things harder for herself than she needs to, and it almost always ends up backfiring because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Where she she will repeatedly make decisions, which are perfectly logical decisions, but there would have been an easier, more logical decision that could have been taken instead – and because she took the harder choice than the easier choice, it ends up backfiring on her. Even though she is the type of person, she is the type of person for whom it's it, it, she's very much that work hard and the world will reward you kind of person. But every time she tries that for herself, it backfires, and I find it fantastic. Yep. Um, in, in in this case, she could have just as easily swooped down to the front doors where her friends were, but instead of doing that, she wanted to be fancy and go in through the arrow slit, which then got her arrested. Yep. Uh, so yeah, they cuff her and lead her downstairs while the rest of the group sees her being led in chains towards the main chamber. <laughs> the group... Half half laughing and half worried, try to convince the guards to release her until Kima steps up and bluntly tells them that killed us with her. Slightly embarrassed to remove the cuffs, bow and scurry away. <laughs> uh, in the heart of the temple, they meet High Bearer Vord, leader of the leader of the Platinum Order of Bahamut, an elven man uh, who is exceptionally old, even for an elf. He introduces himself and tells them that the entire box uh, containing the horn must be taken into the hall, hall of Exalt, deep in the mountain below the main part of the temple. More big proper nouns that don't mean anything to the party just yet, uh, but are part of the world building that Matt Mercer does. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it has a number of protections built into it, as well as being located deep below the temple proper. However, the area where the box needs to be placed has been found to be infested with large spiders. Coincidentally. Everyone's basement is infested with some kind of creature, be it large spiders or giant rats. Yep. Welcome to more fantasy tropes. That's a universal truth of fantasy. Uh, Never let your basement go untended for more than two days, basically. Because if you do, shit grows. Um... And there's some some interesting dialogue here. Um where he's explaining where they're going to store the artifact, what's happened down there, you know, sort of some of the history of the area. Um, And there's an interesting thing I've noticed, particularly in this game, but sometimes in other, uh, other storytelling mediums as well, where... In in reality, when you are confronted with someone who is obviously of a higher rank than yourself, most people – not all people, but most people – adjust their social interactions to meet that inequality. You know, it's it's that sort of thing when your mom tells you, well, no, we can't use that China. That's for if the Queen of England stops by kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in situations – such as this, though, whether it's an issue with communication or perception or just people who are sort of utilizing meta – who are, who are being meta-aware of the situation, it can be difficult sometimes to get people to interact with a fictional character in that same manner. And I find it fascinating to kind of analyze the psychology behind – here is Vox Machina, a capable group of adventurers who's basically meeting the Pope, more or less. Yeah. And yeah. Well, a Pope. A Pope. Maybe not the Pope, but definitely a Pope, yes. Uh, and treating him like he's just another dude they're doing a job for, more or less. Which, for me, is very much a suspension of dis. I mean, because the, the 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 game master Matt has gone into all this uh, effort of describing not only the individual that they're faced, but his attendants, the other people that are obviously subservient to him, the vast, crazy uh, institution and building that he is uh, in possession of, and sort of su- supervisor over. Um, and the fact that it is literally at the peak apex of this hugely massive city with long-standing history and traditions, virtually impregnable, you know. And when you have all of that already established, and then your characters respond in a flippant sort of manner without much justification for that, that can be – that can be a, a – a, a a bit where the the train seems to have gone off the rails a little bit for me anyway. What do you guys think? Um. So I find this is this is another trope actually that I've that kind of annoys me personally uh, when people play this type of character. It's the scrappy underdog that doesn't care about your rules or your order. Mm-hmm. Um. 
it's it and it, it it happens most often in D and D games, uh, where somebody makes a character that they are just determined, and and, and we all know people like this. Uh, some of us are related to people like this uh, that that make a character that completely ignores refuses to give a fuck <laughs> or refuses to care yep. about the society around them, about the culture and society around them, and and while it's a valid character choice, I find it's very insulting to the culture that they're visiting. Um, it's it you know it's it's kind of like going to another land and spitting at their leader. Uh, you know, it's it's like whether or not you have any loyalty to this character or not, there's still a certain level of convention that should be followed for, yes, this guy might not have the authority over me personally as an individual, but they've got authority over everyone else around me. I should show some deference. Um, and, but there's this, this, this tendency of going, well, I'm a badass, I'm a player character, I'm a protagonist, so I don't have to give a fuck about your rules, man. You don't, you don't own me. You're not my dad. (laughs) Uh, And I threw it on the ground. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. It's this, it's this sort of semi-anarchy, uh, uh, attitude people have towards, uh, people in authority. Yep. And it's tough because you're tempted to immediately reward that karma. But you can't as a GM or as a storyteller without suddenly halting your story. Um it 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 puts it, and and that's 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 very much where that sort of off the rails feeling comes in because logically when you start disrespecting a leader of this magnitude what should happen is guards arrest them <laughs> yes right. but if you do that then you've suddenly driven your own story off the rails uh, because there has to be, and and in situations like this, the the game master, the storyteller, ends up bending more than they probably should to accommodate this attitude. Yeah, and that's, that's fair. really part of the reasons why I really don't like that. Like I, I'm, I'm fine with that attitude, but it's just one person, and there are other people to rein that person in. But in the case of Vox Machina, at least at this point in their lives, it's every one of them. None of them have any respect towards authority whatsoever. So, um, personally, this is actually a trope I very, very much like. With a caveat. Um, I like this kind of character because I'm a big fan of settings that are somewhat dystopian. If there's no conflict with it that is inherent within the setting, um, it can sometimes be a stretch to have really long sustained stories. Um, I mean, you can always find stories, but but it, it's it, a lot of times it can come more naturally and resonate more if if you have that inherently dystopian, uh, um, not full bore, but at least but at least elements of it, and so a character. Who who goes in and basically says I don't give a fuck is is a nice way to show that sort of um, 
refuse to normalize that 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 kind of setting and show that that kind of stuff is 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 very inherently wrong. That being said, the key with those characters is that they can't they can't do what um, uh, we in the wrestling writing business um, <laughs> what, what what the wrestling industry refers to as no selling. You can't go in and just not give a shit, and then when everybody everybody is piling on you, even before the chance of getting thrown in jail or whatever, the, or if you do get thrown in jail, whatever the consequences are, you can't just shrug those off because yeah, the no, reci- this reciprocated part of of the value of that character saying I don't care is they also allow you to give power to the dystopian society um, and, and reveal the extent of what they're up against when the full weight of it comes crashing down to some degree. So the problem that I have with that, I feel like there are ways to get that same sort of use out of a character without the I don't care attitude. <coughs> um, just as an example, uh in our Eberron game, we've got three urchins that are also thieves. Uh-huh. Um, and so by their very nature, they are counter to the society around them. At the same time, they still have that healthy respect of the guards outnumber us. There are more of them. We might not care about their laws, but we need to respect their forces uh-huh. because we alone cannot stand against their tide. Right. Um, what 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 I find what I find particularly annoying is the I don't give a fuck no matter what. Well, yes, um, but that I feel like that's a different problem. That is the no selling problem. Right. Yeah, and it's, if it's, you're no if you're no selling story elements, it doesn't doesn't matter whether you're no selling the society or you're no selling the fact that somebody just chopped your arm off or whatever it is. It's a problem. Right, well, you've stopped and, playing and, and, a game, and you've yeah. started, and you've started well, no, you, you, faking you stopped, a simulation. <laughs> you've, you've stopped telling a story and have started right. playing a game. Exactly, or, or that, um, that's actually probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. The and and and, and the thing that the, the the big thing about me is that the the, the 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 biggest thing about it that even when even when it's not just no selling the story, there has to be a level of emotional investment for you to tell a story you have to of course. Be, you have to be attached to it and i find that when you play a character who has that or when somebody's playing a character who has that i don't give a fuck attitude there's no way to hook them emotionally because they don't care mm. whether or not they're whether or not they're reacting to society they just don't emotionally give a shit enough to do anything and they end up being dragged along by the rest of the party more or less and not really buying into the story or to the story hooks. I mean, you're not wrong. I don't give a shit attitude. You're not wrong, but that's a, to me, that's a very narrow subset of the don't give a shit. That's the, I don't give a shit about the storyline that's going on. And if you have a character like that in, in in the story that you are writing from a narrative perspective, you know, outside of the role playing game thing, then you've got a problem with your story because you're you're you are have somebody going along with you that is discrediting your story as you're writing it. 
Um, That's a character that needs to get rewritten. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You got to give them something to care about. If you have a character in a game that's doing that, that happens. That happens a lot. Right. Yeah. That's, a um, that's a player issue, not a. That's so a player as a, issue. Well, as and... a, as a, let, let's stop on that for a second. As a GM, as as people who you know write stories and, and do GM mm-hmm. stories, how do you deal with a player who is there for the game, not for the story, and have <laughs> a character that is very much there for the game, not for the story? I mean, part of it is I force them to write. I I, I force them to actually write out or tell me what their backgrounds are. Uh, most people I have found, in my experience as a role uh, as a as a as a DM or storyteller, um, most people who are only there for the game, for the for the dice, you know, the the, the combats and that and that so on, won't write significant backstory not not even necessarily right but won't come up with significant backstory they won't come up with a full character um yeah they'll they'll come up with a stat array but not a character exactly they will come up with with a stat array and a basic character type just enough so that they can they they can say they're being in character um or they will come up with the laziest story that they can come up with that in written form would probably be about half a paragraph, um, and and everything else, all the all the rest of the time is focused in on uh, uh, what designs are carved into their weapons and <laughs> what what color their cloak is, or or things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so, me, it's yeah. Well, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. no, it. go ahead. I was going to say, for me, it's it's not. For me, it's I honestly have never had to deal with a player like that in a game that I can remember because I spend so much time on group and player prep mm-hmm. that by the time the game starts, those people are already gone because I have badgered the heck out of them to the point where they're like, oh, you're playing that type of game. This is not what I want to be spending my time doing. And they've gotten bored and left. Right. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, uh talking with your players as you're producing the game as you're preparing you know because i'm a, i'm firmly of the opinion that while you can have fun just being like hey here's four people that i happen to know and they're sort of interested let's get things started and that can be enjoyable if you're if you're wanting to play a narratively focused game you have to prep your players for it mm-hmm. you know there there's there's a reason that you don't see a lot of theater productions with a you know, that basically got cast, rehearsed, and performed inside of a week. You know, it's yeah. like, it, no, you, you have to prepare your players when you're trying to tell a story. You have to prepare your actors. There's, well, there's, there's and things to if go you find not, 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 not one to rain on that, but I have been in oh, shows. Well, yes, yeah, sure, of course sure. it happens. And right, yeah. And mm-hmm. well, but the idea being that... Right. Yeah, but the idea. Being I've also that... I've also been in shows with people who were cast in fairly prominent roles that only ever attended a week's worth of rehearsals. So. <laughs> well, yes, of course. <laughs> um, ultimately, I think if you've done all that and then you get and some somebody has created a character who has depth to them and everything else as as written, but then they go into the story and they just don't. They they are not buying. You have to find a way to get them to buy in, whether it's bringing up something from their backstory 
or, or, or whatever the case may be, or ultimately taking them aside and having an out of game conversation with Mm -hmm. them saying, Hey, look, it doesn't seem like you're interested in where this story is going. How can I change that? Right. Um, which I think is, is something I've seen generally when I have seen people, people talk about, you know, having out of game care conversations with people, it always seems to be in an adversarial way. And that's a big problem. Generally, in my experience, it should be, here's a problem that I see, and this is, this is in life period, but here's a problem that I see with what's going on. How can I help you get there because I'm the person who is guiding this whole thing. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and and that that's 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 a difficult that's that's a tricky that's a difficult talent to, to learn in it any is. scenario of mm-hmm. of talking to, of having discussions with people in a non confrontational manner because it feels like you know, it especially if you're the person that everybody else is having the problem with, it's it's legitimate criticism and whether or not you feel it's valid it can still feel like an attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, as 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 someone who you know gets a lot of criticism because I'm an actor and I I do I open myself up to criticism even even when I'm willing to accept criticism it can still feel like an attack especially if I don't understand where the criticism is coming from mm-hmm. or it's something that I can't, like that it's necessarily something that might not even be something that I'm doing, but it's something that they are bringing to the situation that is influencing how they perceive a thing I'm doing. That's, right. that's, that's the word. That's the hardest criticism, criticism to deal with because it's not necessarily anything you're doing. It's something that they have, they're bringing to the situation that is coloring what you're doing in their eyes. Yep. I, I hate having to deal with that because there's nothing I can do to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, and going back to the idea of of these characters who don't, I think the character, the the, the don't give a fuck character is an incredibly viable character. I mean, I play them a lot. Quinn was a don't give a fuck character. Um, But there were still things that Quinn gave a fuck about. Exactly. That's the key is... To be a character, that's not necessarily a problem with the character type. That's a problem with the character itself. Because no matter what, if you are making a character who is viable as a character, they have to care about something. Yeah. What, no matter what it is, there has to be something they care about. Otherwise, no matter what, what concept or what attitude or what style you do, it's not going to work, and it's not a it's not a viable character. Yeah. And, that's and I mean, like for, you'll that's see this for anybody writing characters. Is, yes. Right? Yeah, you see this the in Hollywood films all the time. How many times have you seen that action movie with that standard white guy action hero who doesn't care about anything except mm-hmm. fill in the blank here? You know, don't fucking kill John Wick's dog. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We've we've literally had two whole movies of chain murder because somebody killed the wrong dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, brilliant also, movies. There's too. also oh, yeah, fantastic there, movies. There's also a lot of like Greek storytelling undertones in those movies. That, aside from that, but right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like that's that's Casablanca in a nutshell. Finding yep. that one thing that Rick cares about 
and pulling yeah. on that string. You know, yeah. Uh, and and also another thing when you're writing a character that has something they care about, it can't be a secret. At least not from the audience or not from the game master in the case of a D. Like no. you can't have Oh no, my character has something they care about. What is it? You're out to find out. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> no. That don't fly. That don't fly. <laughs> That's code yes. for I'm trying to figure out what the least effective thing I can care about is so I can't make my character do anything that I don't want it to do. I mean, yeah. you can get away with that. <laughs> you can get away with that when you are writing or 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 telling episodic TV or film whatever for a right. certain period of time. Right, cuz it yeah, has the, to show up eventually. It has the to audience eventually. has, has to, to find to out eventually. Up, and it has to show up sooner than the end. Yes, because I don't care what is revealed in the last five minutes of the movie, if the character's motivation is not revealed until the last five minutes of a movie or a TV series... Then it's a bait and switch. Then that's a bad character. Period. End of sentence. You do not retroactively make a character better just because in the last five minutes you revealed their issue. Yes. And for fuck's sake, if you're playing in a role-playing game, do not try to hide your motivation from... From from the 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 the, the DM, no, because yeah. God, hide it from everybody else. Although you can hide it from everybody else, although I personally don't find that particularly entertaining because then it's this it's this sort of impish. I've got a secret, you don't know it. I've got a right. secret, you don't know it. Thing, but like you can hide it from the other players. That's fine. If that's your prerogative, but don't hide it from the storyteller or the GM. That's just stupid. Yeah, no, that's, just, is, that's, that's, that's baiting the GM is what that is. Well, it's not only baiting the GM, but once it finally comes out, it's not going to be nearly as nobody as knows what's going on yeah. when you're, when your character who has this whole big tragic backstory that you never bothered to tell the, the, the DM and he introduces somebody who is and you happens to be spare. A, yes. a black dragonborn anything who's no, who's normally a very good person, but your family was killed by a black dragonborn, and you launch in and you destroy you you kill them in the middle of a court scene. Don't yeah. be surprised when <laughs> there's like ten minutes of silence that follows that. <laughs> Yeah, don't. You know, not that I have experience with that kind of thing happening to me or anything. No, yeah, 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 totally no, sounds no, like no, a none of us hypothetical do. situation. Uh, actually, actually, apparently, Jack, apparently, apparently, Jack legitimately doesn't have any experience with that. <laughs> not personally, but I've I've seen it happen. Not with Black yeah. Dragon Ball, but let me tell you, some <laughs> World of Darkness ga- uh, online chat games I've played in, oh, you motherfuckers out there, I remember you. <laughs> so, <laughs> back in Critical Role. Uh, I'm working through some issues. <laughs> we all are. Um, so, back in... Back, there are large spiders in the in the place, and the group will need to remove the spiders along the way, contend with some of the automated defenses, and place the locks in a highly guarded room. Vex point out the, points out that while the group is doing work doing work to protect the world, they're also clearing out a bug infestation for the high bearer himself. This Scanlan is points the out shaking down the Pope maneuver. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Scanlan points out that a monetary reward could go a long way to help the poor back home should they be given some, and convince the high bearer 
uh, who gives them three thousand gold, who agrees to give them three thousand gold upon the completion of locking away the horn. Kima, deeply annoyed at this, escorts them to the lower chambers. And when you've got your self-insert GM character in the party showing clear annoyance at what you're doing, that mm-hmm. tends to be a hint to stop. Yes. Not for Vox. Yes, Machina. it is. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Not for Vox Machina. They don't let the silly game master get annoyed and let that influence their decisions. I mean, oh, it's, uh... GM character, GM DM storyteller characters can have very wrong opinions at times, and I throw that in regularly so you, so my pl- players are not regularly looking to the NPCs to know As what to do. Cheats. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're care- when when they're trying to talk sense into you, I I, I, I listen. I, I actively make NPCs that are poor that that that, that yes. would make poor choices if put in the party's charge. Or they just oh, yeah. get seasick on a boat. <laughs> I, I make NPCs that are misinformed. I make NPCs that have various perspectives on the world mm-hmm. of varying levels of correctness. Most of my NPCs, though, when they say no ter- tangling with a werewolf is a terrible fucking idea, most of them are right. <laughs> It's yes, true. it's true. <laughs> and sometimes the character just wants to dance with that and, werewolf and, anyways. And, and sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't doesn't achieve what it was set out to do, but at least my hands are washed of the entire I situation. I mean, you know, there some people just want to test their limits, and yes. sometimes that might send them to an early grave, but they still want to test their limits. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that that goes into the idea of um uh it, Levels of trust between you and your players and your players, whether they think that it's an adversarial relationship or a collaborative relationship right. and all of that kind of stuff, because that's one of the situations that can get really tense in role playing. It's happened to me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mage characters who, you know, you give them like four chances to do to uh, of a way to get out of a certain situation and they refuse to take it every time and it comes to a point where you're like I don't know what else I can do okay bam the technocracy's here you're fucked and then they get pissed at you yeah <laughs> you have well, to I, have I get pissed level. whenever the technocracy shows up but that's just me I mean, that's the technique. <laughs> you should be. You should be pissed. You should also be running. Yes. It's yeah. angry running, but it is running. <laughs> uh, so, uh, lost my place. <laughs> uh, they're headed into the hall. I mean, I can rant about Muttering my, just, my Kima, bad past. Kima, Kima deeply annoyed, escorts them to the lower chambers, muttering to Scanlan as they go. As they reach the door leading to the hall, Kima uses her holy symbol to open it. As they descend the first short hallway, they come to a fairly dark room. Tiberius's light spell reveals a large amount of fog hanging in the room, about chest high on everyone, except for the gnomes, uh, for whom it's over their heads. 
Uh, Keyleth uses her control of wind to create a corridor between two large stone pillars, each carved with highly detailed dragons on them. Vax notices that these are where the smoke's coming from, and Vax points out that there are grooves in the ground that allow them to move. As As Vax charges ahead in the path created by Keyleth, he stumbles slightly and his shoulder contacts the mist. This causes the dragons on the pillars to spew flame as the columns begin to spin wildly and burn everything in the immediate vicinity. A good number of folks now scorched thanks to their rogue. The rest managed to get through without incident. Now, at this point, I would like to talk about traps. And <laughs> traps how... are great. I freaking love just, traps. How, how just because you set them off doesn't mean it's your fault. <laughs> um... Yes, it does. <laughs> So there's this there's this there is this tendency uh, in 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 D and D specifically in writing it tends not to be because in writing in, in in like narrative in true narrative if a character sets off a trap they were always meant to set off the trap and we're always going to set off the trap because right. you wrote them setting off the trap right um, but in in shared storytelling there tends to be this reactive. Uh, thing people do and and to be fair people do it in real life too it's part, it's a realistic thing where. Something because goes wrong, you look for somebody to blame. Something goes wrong that couldn't have been foreseen, and or at least not foreseen with the information present at the time, and then people retroactively go, oh, well, you should have known that was going to happen. Right. And like in this particular instance, there's no way they could have known that the mist was going to explode. Like, there's no, a couple of things they reasonably could have guessed... There's, you know, like maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's poison, Poisonous. or maybe there's something hidden in the mist, or something. But there's no way you could have guessed that accidentally bumping the mist is going to cause the room to ignite. Right. Well, and let's um, let's let's differentiate there between fault and blame. Yes. Because I would say yes. this is Vax's fault. He he took an object. He he took an action. Did not, you know, he lost his balance or whatever, and set off a trap. That's his fault. Now, is he is he to be blamed for slipping? That's a little more murky of a question. You know, I mean, depends on and granted we you know, since this is the result of a die roll, uh you can't necessarily detail exactly what it is unless the player decides to narrate it, you know, but it's like, yeah, was he not paying attention? Was he looking where that's something that was drawing his focus? Was he not being as careful as he should have been? Yeah, could go either or way. Did he, or did he expect? Oh, I'm gonna have to breathe in this mist for something bad to happen to me, so I'm just gonna be a little bit less careful than I would be otherwise. Right. What we're saying is, don't roll. Don't blame the person who rolls poorly. Yeah. Don't, as, as players, it's poor form <laughs> to yell at a person who rolls low on a perception check and Even tries when to they do the door. Everything okay? else. <laughs> So, <laughs> saying that's poor form. If you're a fan of multiple shows on 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 uh, no, 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 films, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Spoilers. First of all, second of all, I was gonna say stop here. Go second listen all, to Ebron right now, and then come back. <laughs> they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's all it needs to go. Okay, fair enough. Because every game has an instance where this happens. Every single game ever played. No, no, absolutely. (laughs) 
Um, I tend to take a lot of joy in a lot of my a lot of my tabletop games. I my, my characters are what are referred to as the Uncle Trap Springer characters, even if they're not rogues. <laughs> because exactly because it's not that they it's not that they 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 go up and try to disc you know try to discover the trap. They are not the person who is the the party rogue who is trying to deal with all this stuff. No, no, they're the people who are like. Just happen to get, just happen to have the traps hit them. No, oh, no. The, the the best part though is when you put a room, when you make a room that's an obvious trap that isn't actually trapped. That uh, that's awesome. That's the party fun. spends the party spends thirty minutes trying to navigate through this not trapped room. Yep. <laughs> See, I can't do paranoia that. is the trap. I can't do that with you guys because that'll turn into three hours of you guys arguing about the room. Um, no, no, it won't, because I'll move forward. <laughs> Somebody will eventually get that's, forward. That's what I'm there for. <laughs> yes, you are. You are Eberron's um, Uncle Trap Springer. Yep. And that's fine. Because uh, <laughs> somebody has to do it. Uh, anyway, I just, I just wanted to divert there, because <laughs> it's, not, it's not Vax's fault that the room exploded. <laughs> It's his fault. He is not to blame for it. However. Yes, it that is, is the fault. Of the fa- it is the fault of a die roll. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there may now have the been conversation trap, however, before we started recording. Now the that next may trap, have however, relevance to this. Down a narrow hall, they come next to a round room filled <laughs> with circles inlaid on the floor. Across the room is a wider set of stairs, which they can see thanks to a combo Vax Arrow and Tiberius or Vex Arrow and Tiberius light spell. Before anyone can ask or talk, Vax slicks his boots of haste, uh, click slicks, clicks, clicks his boots of haste, and jumps forward into the room. As one hand touches the circle, it moves and the whole of the room begins to contort. One of the circles launches into the air, slamming into the roof, just missing Vax. He continues across the room, dodging left and right as each stone post tries to crush him against the ceiling. As he dodges one, a second shoots uh, shoots him straight upward into the stonework. He manages to land, though he now has suffered a couple broken ribs and maybe a separated shoulder, and gets to the other side. He falls against the wall, trying to catch his breath, and looks for some sort of off switch. The only thing he can find is a small hole uh, that one pillar continues to slam into. Vex draws her bow as Scanlan tells her to shut up and shoot that hole. She fires, the arrow streaking perfectly between the pillars. As it hits the edge of a small hole and bends, Tiberius uses telekinesis to slam the arrow straight up into the hole with force. The arrow splinters and metal crunches and grinds as the pillar slows to a halt halfway up and down across the room. They pause for a minute to heal Vax's broken bones before heading down the long staircase before them. So that one was both his fault and he was to blame. <laughs> yeah, well, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but his intention here was, oh, this room is definitely trapped. I'm going to sacrifice myself so that we can turn it off without anybody else getting injured. Yeah, that only works if you're actually capable of turning it off. I mean, that's yep. fair, but uh, I, I – the, 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 yeah, yeah. In this case, he very intentionally triggered the trap room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but – he 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 did so knowing that he would be the only one being injured. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and giving himself as much advantage as he could possibly give himself to, yeah. to do yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Also true. Uh, this is this this is an instance <laughs> of uh, 
the rogue taking the barbarian method of uh, trap detection. <laughs> Run at it fast. Anyway. It is a valid method of trap removal. Con-based trap detection is indeed valid. Yes. <laughs> And honestly, this is this kind of sequence can be very, very entertaining um, in in narrative, where you're giving them obstacles that are, while maybe not extraordinarily clear and somewhat mysterious, they are at least very straightforward. Yeah, and and there's there's a lot of. There's a lot of sequences in very famous works of literature and things that are extremely popular in the public consciousness that utilize this to very great effect. Um, you know, I mean, this is like this is this is Indiana Jones, pretty much all mm-hmm. of the movies. Um, you know, this is this is uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone uh, when they're trying to to get to the the MacGuffin in that in that book yep. slash movie. Um, you know, there's even, there's plenty of, you know, I mean, shit with like, uh, Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, right? I mean, going way back, you know, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, Ulysses, mm-hmm. you know, how many times were they, you know, confronted I mean, by, you know, random weird yeah. stuff like this, uh, you know, and it's like, okay, you have to the, sail the, your ship between the huge monster and the crazy world. Go, you know? Yeah, the, uh, the Iliad, the Iliad is the, the the Iliad and the Odyssey are filled right. with mm. these kinds of things. Like, um, yeah, we have you know there 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 is a host of sirens on the rocks off to the side. Okay, time me to the pole. Everybody else, plug your ears. Yep. yep. Like you know, there. Although I don't know why he didn't just plug his ears too. Oh, because he wanted to actually have the experience of hearing the song without necessarily being risking his life. Yeah. I guess, um, and then you know, they, like with the, the cyclops that with the, the that they blinded to escape right. with, and etc. Mm-hmm. Sheep and everything, and tell him your name to yeah. nobody, so he won't be able to identify you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Although he then fucked that up by telling him his actual name when they left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he got Poseidon pissed off at him for the next. Yeah, and he paid several, the consequences. Several decades. Several decades yep. He paid the consequences <laughs> for that hubris. Because yes, because Ulysses is a reckless little shit. Yep. <laughs> so the stairs go the stairs drop deeper and deeper as Tiberius makes a small flame ball to burn away a good number of thick spider webs that are becoming more prevalent as they go down. They all fear what will, what they will find when they actually see what creatures are making these webs. The twins use the shadows cast by the remaining webs to slowly weave through the stairway until the light from the fire begins to reflect dozens of small points of light. The flame no longer controlled, Tiberius and Keyleth both cast spells to protect themselves as Scalian blinks out. A handful of spiders appear from the webs as Vex steps forward and conjures a barrage of arrows into them. Pierced repeatedly, they reel back, the instant, the instant attack peppering them, and the fight scene continues to happen until all the spiders are dead. And phase spiders become a thing, but, you know. Is there anything in particular about this fight that you guys want to touch on, or shall we move on? I would say continue for the most part, yeah. Yeah, no, this was this was a very standard sort of, not not in a bad way, but it no. was a very standard sort of fight. Um, Entertaining, but nothing too terribly noteworthy to talk exactly. about. Uh, aside from the fact that that Tiberius continues to use stone pillars in unique ways, which I appreciate as a primary spellcaster. I mean, it's got to have um, some good character trait. I, I mean, I, I, I appreciate 
<laughs> so I, we can we actually talk about that in in D anD D in particular. There's this there's this tendency to only do what the mechanics say you can do. Right. Um, yes. And so you you end up with you know your ranger shoots things with arrows, your fighter hits things with a sword, your sorcerer casts their spells that do damage. Um, I appreciate using mechanics in unique ways, as anyone that has listened to the Eberron game for more than two episodes can tell. <laughs> I like I like to look turn mechanics sideways. Uh, I, you know. Say, is there a, is there a ledge on the bottom of this on the bottom of this bridge? Why? So I can wrap this guy up in my whip, jump over the edge, catch the ledge, and send them tumbling down below. Uh, you know, uh, things like that. I, I like to find ways to come at a problem sideways, and in that method, because you can do that, all that does is make the GM think a little harder. But um, th- th- there, there is nothing in the rules saying you can't come at a problem sideways. And I find in narrative storytelling, characters, you know, having your characters come at a problem sideways instead of head on, makes that character, their thought processes, and that scene infinitely more interesting. Yes. Very frequently, yes. A guy hitting us a guy hitting somebody with a sword until they stop moving isn't interesting. A guy entangling a person in a whip, jumping around a light post and slamming them into the wall so that they can't move is interesting. It might not be effective or quick, but it's interesting. Or a character grabbing a person by the face and drowning them in sewage because they hurt his brother is interesting. As this is what is known as the rule of cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this is this is why Zoro could just run out the door, but instead he jumps onto a chandelier and slashes a rope and rides it up to the ceiling or whatever the fuck mm-hmm. you know, this is this is what makes this is what makes characters like Jack Sparrow fundamentally more interesting than Will Turner. Yeah. Or oh, actually like even even going along the same vein, uh um Jack Sparrow and Short Round are basically the same character. It takes a little bit of differentiating, but if you if uh-huh. you if you if you look at them from their like core narrative purpose, Jack Sparrow and Short Round from Indiana Jones serve the same purpose. The difference being everyone hates Short Round. Most people Because he's a racist caricature? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Most people enjoy Jack Sparrow. Most people enjoy Jack Sparrow for the first movie to three yeah. movies. Yeah, not for the for the movies where he's a side character as he's supposed yes, to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but they, yeah. they both serve as utility sidekicks, the utility comedy sidekicks to the main character. Uh, the difference being, short round is a racist caricature that makes stale standard. Well, references. I mean, there's also I also short round could be replaced with an entirely different character in every way, and history, ethnicity, age, gender, everything, and you could still run the movie the exact same way. Jack yeah, Sparrow, you couldn't. Yeah, exactly. Because even though they fill yeah. the same role, Jack Sparrow comes at that role sideways. Naturally. He comes at it differently. Uh, whereas Short Round is 
remove him, slot in uh, ethnic sidekick B, and it still works. Or, you know, maybe not ethnic sidekick B. No, you could could slot in ethnic sidekick C. Yes. (laughs) See, Hollywood is so good with diversity. Yep. Yep. There are ethnic sidekicks one, two, and three. And then there are female sidekicks one, two, and three as well. Yeah, all all six of those characters could fill short rounds role. But all not six of those characters ethnic would be just as annoying. One, two, or three, because no, that's that, going that, too far. That's pandering. Ethnic female sidekick one, two, or three is too unique of an idea. Yes, we don't we don't want to. You can either be ethnic or basically, female. Basically, be basically what we're trying to get across here, audience. Is... <laughs> Fuck Hollywood. Or well, now Hollywood. Hollywood does Hollywood do, Hollywood serves a very important purpose. Fuck stereotypes. Yes, no. <laughs> I mean you're talking about those who make their living partially off Hollywood. So yeah, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm all for Hollywood. Like Hollywood is not a problem. It's the symptoms that it represents. Yes. Um but yeah, and that it perpetrates. But 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 yeah, like that—that's just sort of a, a pop culture reference as to how you can come at a problem from two different angles, and one angle is going to be more interesting because it's not the one we've seen dozens of times. I.e., Jack Sparrow instead of Short Round. Right. Um, but yeah, so they fight spiders. Yep, yep. Uh, Tiberius kills them with stone pillars, which is, that's not what stone pillars are for. But the fact that they let them use that, I find in particular to be cool. I, I like, I like using magic and D and D for for means by which they're not intended. Yeah. Yes. Um, I like using anything. I like I. I, I, I had a I had a I had a Shadowrun game where uh, a, a character ripped off a guy's cyber limb and then skated down a set of stairs on his torso using the cyber limb to bat away other enemies. Like right. I like it's the, when you... it's the reason that watching Jason Statham fight in the transporter movie is okay, but watching Jackie Chan fight in pretty much anything else is like far more entertaining, at least from my yeah. perspective. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's much more creative than to just exactly. go with your standard technique kind of thing. Even though both can be entertaining. Right. Uh, so, uh, they uh, after the fight, Keyleth harvests some poison glands in the corpses, and they move to the bottom of the stairs. This opens into a large room, a smaller building in the middle of that, uh, which resembles a mausoleum. The edges of the room, which are quite large, are surrounded by spider webs. Scanlan jumps forward as Vax quietly slides into the room and watches his gnomish fringe strut past him. Taking a minute to look the room over, they notice that the room is covered in the same symbols and jewels and the, the box they are carrying the horn in. As the group slowly moves into the room, Vex takes a moment to get a sense as to what's on the far side of the room. She gets the feeling that there are a large number of small life sources behind the little room in the middle. Scanlan and Grob move, next, move next to the building as Kima and the scale bearers move forward with the box. Kima opens the doors, the others cast protective spells around them, and Tiberius throws a few illusion cards to the sides in an effort to give more of a presence around them, because the illusions are going to fool the spiders, you see. <laughs> I mean, because it could happen. They don't, because they don't have tremor sense. Uh, no, I get it. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Uh, Kima opens. Uh, the, the intent is there. The intent yes. is to be helpful. It was a good plan. It was just based on bad information. Exactly. K- 
Keem opens the door, which issues a few small grinding noises as the stone slips to the side. Scale bearers move forward with Pike and Tiberius in tow, placing the box in the middle and quickly get out before the doors close. As they do, a number of spiders begin to move around the central structure. They get caught up between these stinking clouds, scaling casts, and, uh, and, uh, and thorns that Vex casts. Uh, a much larger spider climbs top of the building, menacing above them. Gems along the floor, floor and walls glow, reaching the ceiling and revealing four humanoid figures recessed there. One of the golems detaches, landing atop the large spider and crushing it. Seeing this happens, everyone at once bolts out of the room, leaving the golems to kill the spiders. Hey, Although one of them tries to kill Kira with a massive cleaver. Uh, yeah, yeah. Security system that functions. Yep. Uh, a little too well. Yeah, Kima, uh, Kima hurries everybody out, pushing past them, and they all tear up the staircase uh, as one, uh, although one of the scale bearers falls uh, as the golems try to kill them, too. Uh, Kima stops to get him to his feet, uh, and the first golem reaches them and sweeps both of its blades at them, one missing above them, but the other connecting for a good amount of damage. Keyleth pauses her running and throws up a wall of stone behind them as Tiberius creates pillars behind to try to reinforce them and buy them time to get out. Again, using spells for not their intended purpose. Um, they reach the top of the stairs, dodging through the room of pillars and getting them and getting to the room with the mist. Keyleth creates another path for them, and Grog turns to the sound of a golem smashing through the stone and hits the edge of the mist, activating the fire from the pillars again. This time, Grog's <laughs> fault. Yep. Uh, <laughs> They all pile out as Kima yanks out her holy system. And no, nobody bitches at Grog, though. I'm just well, saying. no, because it's Grog. Right. Just saying. Bitch at the rogue, but not the barbarian. I see how you go. Um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's why. Yeah. Uh... They all pile out, Kima yanks out her holy symbol, mutters a prayer, and the golems stop. The symbol of Bahamut glowing on her chest now, which makes you wonder why she didn't do that earlier. Uh, closes the door, she closes the door, sealing it all in the chambers below them. They made it out alive, if a bit singed. They head back up to the main chamber to inform High Bearer of War that they have completed their mission. He gives them their payment and informs Pike a recently discovered ancient temple to her goddess Saren Ray. He also tells Keyleth uh, when she asks that there is talk of a rogue group of druids to the southwest of the city. She thanks him and makes note of it, hoping that it is not the fire tribe that has somehow gone bad. He tells them good day and they leave, uh, or, or as Grog says, bidet. I believe this is the origin of bidet, isn't it? No, no. Is this no. Not? Bidet is not for a long time. I yeah. thought this was the origin. No, bidet uh, is from... Ankarel? Uh, uh, or is it before then? It's Singorn, I believe. Singorn, yes, I think. Is it Singorn? Okay. Yeah. I thought, it was, I thought it was here, because this is the first time they actually say good day as a, as a goodbye. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, they leave as Kima stays behind discussing with the head of our order. The team goes to the far side of the mountain uh, that the sanctuary is on and discovers the excavation of the new temple. They inform the guards of who they are and are allowed to enter. As they make their way into the deep hole, Pike notices multiple items that point to an ancient temple that has been lost for centuries. Seeing three people in the hole, they approach them. Startled, the woman in the group jumps up, waving her arms. Pike shows them her symbol, and they beg for her to stay and help them bring light to the, dawnflower to, uh, the light of the dawnflower to the city. She looks at the group, and they all know the choice that she has to make. Bidding, bidding her a tear-filled tear farewell, the rest of the group climbs out of the site as Pike begins to go over the uncovered relics of her goddess. And that is the end of this session. Yep. So, 
one thing that, that, that this end really touches on that um, we haven't had a chance to really do yet is writing characters out of the narrative for at least for a period of time. Yeah. Um, we have two characters, one, a, one, a main, obviously main character in Pike, but also Kima who are essentially being written out of the regular traveling group for the time being. Um, which is writing a character out you know, is is a tricky situation. Um, you really have to sort of uh, make it a, a departure, whether whether it is however you are taking a character out of the story. You have to make the departure uh, appropriate to the importance of the character within your story. Um, I mean, technically, we've had dozens and dozens of characters getting written out already as they've been one-shot characters who have been killed off in fights against the group. Um, But if you have a character, you know, when you're looking at more significant characters, like, like Kima, like Pike, if a char- if if a character is getting killed off, um, which has happened a lot recently because the 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 TV fall season or the TV season has just ended, so that's their big thing to do in finales. Um, it's something where you want to make sure that that character's departure is handled in a way that is proportional to their impact on the story. If they were just a smaller side character, you don't want to give them an overly um, an overly important or overly uh, not not necessarily important. Spend too much time on their departure, whereas if it is a major character like Pike or like like even Kima in this case, you don't want to just shunt them off really quickly. Um, which is always a difficult balance, I think, to 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 uh, to find, particularly with um, uh, well, with villains too, but particularly with with main protagonists. Um, I've always had uh, had varying success with with the amount of both in writing and in in terms of of, of characters that I've I've played and that I've run of of how well I've managed getting the, getting characters out of the storyline and making it seem appropriate. I don't know how you guys mm-hmm. have done. John, why don't you lead? Uh, so for me, getting characters out of a storyline, at least in D&D, uh, not, not necessarily writing, but in D&D in particular, it's more... Uh, for player characters, if they're only going to be out for a little bit, I just sort of hand wave that they're not there because it, it makes it easier right. than dwelling on it. Of course. Uh, but for, for NPCs, um, typically they have a set lifespan with the party in the first place. Just as an example, in Grand Terra Avengers, you guys, for a little while, you guys had a hireling, uh, mm-hmm. Firelight, uh, who was a sorceress, and she basically, you guys uh, hired her to take you to. Uh, Mayo Sushi. Sushi, specifically to the Dragon Clan organization where you guys were going to be. Actually, no, she didn't even get. No, just, just to Mayo Sushi, not all the way to the Dragon Clan. Um, right. 
which she did. She stayed with you until she got there, and then she stayed with you a little bit just to get you just to get you guys sort of interred in the city and 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 understand the situation going on. And then she was like, "All right, I'm a dip. Bye." Yep. Um, interred. <laughs> yeah, interred. We were buried in a cemetery. No. I don't remember this. <laughs> you, you were interred in the city. You were in, you were you were uh, placed within the city without an express ability to leave. Interred. Okay. Well, that's okay. I'll I'll take. Um. It. <laughs> uh. But yeah. Uh. That that was her purpose, and her purpose, once her purpose was fulfilled, she left. You guys then quickly found another NPC to follow you along. But uh, yeah. basically, like like I set I set a lifespan. On an NPC, right. whether that's their actual lifespan or once they've dealt with an issue, and you guys had several of these guys. You had uh, uh, there was there was uh, Khan, there was Kulain later on, there was uh, mm-hmm. Kulain who got you to the capital city of the world, and then said, "All right, uh, we'll go down there, we'll we'll find out stuff, and then I'm gonna hang around here, so have fun." Um, and uh, that like that is how I deal with that typically. Uh, if there has to, if, 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 if they don't have a pre-prescribed end point in a story, then either they're going to be with you for the long haul, and so their story will end when yours does, or they will, something tragic will happen. Either they have to get called away because something happens in their story that they, you know, they can't mm-hmm. drag you into, or they die, which is, uh, characters dying is the easiest way to write them out of a story because they're dead. Right. Uh, but I'm not necessarily talking about how you take the character out. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the character's actual departure. What For me, that mean? depends a lot on what type of character they are. You know, I mean, exactly. Right. I just want to clarify. I just want to clarify what the difference between those two things is that Jeremy is referring to because I heard the same thing repeated twice. <laughs> okay. No. Um, your reason for taking the character out is there are there are a bunch of different ways. Like killing off a character, that can be done really quickly. That can be done off screen if you wanted to. Okay, so what, but you mean- the actual departure of the character within the narrative is handled in a certain way. Whether okay. it's a whether it's a quick. Okay, see ya, bye. Or whether it is a long with you know character interactions with each person that they they each of the main characters that they've touched along the way, or whether there is an element of tragic to that thing because that character gets arrested and thrown in jail unjustly, or whatever the case may be. Or That's justly. the difference between or justly. That's the difference between how they leave the story and their departure. So what you mean, what, what you mean, not mechanically how they leave, but the emotion or the impact behind their leaving. Well, the, how their departure is portrayed, I think would probably okay. be the best okay. way to put it. I, I misunderstood what you were asking. I thought you were yeah. like, mechanically, how do you guys get, Oh, well, I mean, I mean I'm, no, I'm, I mean, I'm, you get I'm characters out. However you get them out. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, in, in, in that case, uh, uh, yeah, Jack. What do you What do you think? <laughs> I like. 
I like Buffy departures, to be honest. Yeah. I like to pack them with as much emotion as I can muster. Mm-hmm. And that is going to vary based on what type of character they were and what their function in the narrative was. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like my and the way I write st- and write and perform stories and games tends to be more on the less on the uh, logistical, logical. Um, verisimilitude simulation side of things where I'm trying to make everything as real as possible and right. more on the evocative emotional um, you know sort of uh, abstract conceptual uh, you know hero's journey-ish kind of you know metaphorical side of things um, and so since that's the type of story that I generally tell mm-hmm. um, I try and go for emotionally impactful departures now, like you're saying, some of those can be very, very quick. Some of those can be long, drawn out, right. um, you know, dramatic uh, sort of things. You know, I mean, there is there is something fundamentally uh, crazy and <clears throat> horrific about something like uh, the character of Tara's departure in mm. Buffy, for instance. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of one of one of the most impactful character departures that I've ever. F- seen you know mm-hmm. um or or joyce's departure joyce is another good right, one yeah, yeah i was just mm-hmm. gonna say right where where it's a very you know and i'm sure there's people out there that haven't seen it so i'm just gonna say it's a very quick sudden uh sort of sort of event that catches you off guard and so you're surprised by it and the emotional reaction is born out of the shock more or less well, what's interesting whereas about you've got something one. like other 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 characters in that series, like uh, Riley or – well, I mean Riley's kind of a shitty character anyway, so Fuck nobody cares Riley. about his departure. You're right. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> for those that were invested in Angel or in Spike or mm-hmm. individuals like that where the, the departure is a much more drawn-out thing where it's built up a little more, where there's a little more foreshadowing. It's not just a suddenly, oh, well, that just happened, and I guess we won't be seeing them next week, okay? You know, uh, sort of thing. That can be impactful in a different way because it allows you to sort of draw out the the sort of juice in all those relationships that have been built over time in the narrative and really wring that for all it's worth rather than just being like, surprise, bye, you know? Yeah. Okay, okay. So I, I think I know how to answer this question now. Um, so most of the time when I have a character depart a story, it's in such a manner that they can come back and often indicative of the, and often reflect, not indicative, but reflective of how they entered the story. The, the biggest examples I can think, the biggest two examples are Kana and Kulain. Um, Kana in Grand Terra Adventures uh, entered the story very casually because you guys were looking for a potion shop and you happened to find a potion shop and there were two people in there. Actually, I think she was in the bar the first time you found her, but um, you know, when you, when you got sort of got to know a little bit more about her was at the potion shop. Um, and you guys sort of just casually, almost racistly really thought, oh, we know someone from Meosuchi. Let's go hire her to take us to Meosuchi. <laughs> um, which is fine. Cause you know, she's like, sure. Why not? Whatever. It'll be fun. Uh, and she left very much the same way, which was, okay, you guys have, you guys are done. It was lovely seeing you all. Bye. Um, whereas with Kulain, he came into the picture screaming bloody murder, wielding a giant sword, trying to kill a man. 
And he left. He left the same way. The same way. <laughs> Freaking brilliant. Yes. Um, because you know, it, 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 the way characters enter and leave a story is dependent on what purpose they bring. Uh, Kulain was sort of a entity of chaos and violence that was coming in to force you into action. Basically, like, you were all sort of standing there wondering, should we do something about this situation? Should we not do something about this situation? And then a third party comes in and forces your hand. Hmm. And then very much he leaves the same way. You get into a situation where, okay, there's definitely something we need to do here, and he jumps into it. Um, and then there are other characters where they're in their departure – has to have an emotional impact, and so th- at that point it'll change. I like to I, I like to ascribe to the Jawson school of character departure, uh, which is you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> My <Jay> favorite. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking, you didn't expect was, that, did you? Now pick your heart up off the floor. No, I was thinking wash. Fire yeah, wash. Oh, yeah. wash. Oh, God, wash. Yes. Fuck yeah. I like to. I like to send characters out in style. I mean, uh, where where they're making they 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 make sort of a decision that it seems like a very logical and correct decision to make, and just the fates are not kind. Because you don't say. Yeah, you know, because how does a reaver keep his spirit? <coughs> that's that that because that's how life works. That's how the world works, and even in this escapist, you know, story that we're telling, for a story to have emotional impact, it can't come away. You can't come away clean, right? Um, if everybody gets out and dusts themselves off and says, all right, what's next? Then what was, like, they, what did we learn? What did we take away from it? And we so take away in, that we're in a Marvel movie. In, uh, in Serenity, Wash dies. And he dies very unexpectedly. He's piloting the ship, and he's like, and he's, I've got it in control. I'm a leaf on the wind. Watch how I... Um, and, and even... I mean, Killing him mid sentence, mid trademarked sentence, mm-hmm. was just is just such a shot to the gut. Nobody that saw that scene that cared at all about the series and these characters walked away from that unaffected. Like you, I don't know if if you two ever uh, saw it in the theaters. I did. I did. yeah. I don't know if you had the same reaction as the people. Like, no film that I have ever been to has had such a shocked outcry at any particular moment than that one. There was a loud chorus of "Oh shit!" Yeah, no that that's a that's a carpet jerk moment, right? Yes, I I, I didn't have that reaction because I'm a sadistic fuck, but. Um, I also, I mean, I, I work in the industry, and so I, 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 I know that eliciting that sort of a reaction is just the thing that gets you off in this industry. Like that's what you want to do. You want. I to mean, make a yes, but you at go, least. Oh fuck! You're also a heartless bastard because there's at least the initial emotional shock of it. <laughs> 
Oh no! It was a shock, but I. I <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's it was, the after effect that I. I totally get you. I'm giving you. It, a hard was, time. it was. It was a shock mostly because I didn't expect it right there. Right. I expected someone else to die. I just That's didn't know thing who is, it was going to be. It was right. a Joss Whedon show or movie that took place after we had already seen the full runs of. Yeah. Both Buffy and Angel. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think I want to say Dollhouse had been on the air for a season at that point. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah. so we knew what Joss's what Joss's tactics were. Oh, we yeah. were towards yeah, the yeah, end no. of the Josh film. Whedon has a no shtick. major character <laughs> had died yet. No, I was just, died. I, I, yeah, no book had died. Book, uh, no major character. That, that wasn't was old. A, that was still a part of the crew. Yeah, true. No, I was. I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be River or Simon or Kaylee. I was expecting uh, Simon. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was. I was expecting Kaylee more than more than anything else because that would be the one. Uh, but oh, that so, would yes. have gutted people. Oh yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> oh, fuck that you noise. Do not touch our Kaylee. Goddamn no. <laughs> So yeah, so so there, there's there's that that emotional reaction, that that visceral. I knew something was going to happen, but I didn't know what. Is my favorite way to depart a character, um, as we've all experienced uh, in my storytelling. Those of you that have listened to the full run of Grand Terra and and when you put a very obvious "this will kill you" trap. In uh, in a circle of ash, you know, I mean, <laughs> it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Yep. Just, just you knew it was gonna happen. You didn't know how. <laughs> little, little dabble, do you? Little dabble, do. Um, but yeah, like they, I, I find that you want to use that sparingly, right? Because if you, if it's oh, you can get into that horror movie mentality of over the top deaths yeah get old like um, Whedon doesn't do it every single time no, um he when he has when he when when he kills characters or he writes characters out which actually i honestly think he's written more characters out in terms of them leaving than he's killed season yeah. finale of or series finale of buffy notwithstanding mm-hmm. um although most of those were potentials that we didn't even know their name so right, but um, yeah, he does not. He's famous for doing this to the point that he didn't even kill the main the the character who dies in Avengers. That was somebody else, and he was upset because he knew he was going to get blamed for it. Um, <laughs> but he really doesn't do it all that much. And the reason that he's associated with it so strongly is because of that fact. He does it just enough and well enough that it has that permanent soul scarring, scarring Jenny <laughs> calendar wash, um, uh, uh, what, uh, 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 Fred. Yeah. From angel, uh, uh, reaction. Mm-hmm. That you never forget it, and yeah. and I think what makes those the, the the reason why those endings and those departures are so 
memorable and are so sought after from a creative perspective is because they are what remind us that no matter how desensitized we may become with our media or with our storytelling, with our books, with our writing, we are still at the core human beings and Mm -hmm. can be affected by the loss of something precious to us, especially a person. Um, And that's, that's why those tend to stick with us more. Well, I mean, that gets to the core of storytelling and, 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 you know, fiction and, and reading and watching entertainment, et cetera. And, it, and what it means to us and why, you know, everybody talks about, you, know, you always hear people saying, oh, it's entertainment, who gives a shit? Uh, you know, what does it matter that there's representation or whatever the case may be? Um, but storytelling at its core is a, a, a reminder of and helps bring out our empathy, which is an yeah. essential thing to exist in this world. And in in particular, and, I, and we'll, we'll end it on this, but uh, in particular, the thing that I think of, all the, the thing that I always go back to uh, whenever I think of uh, impactful moments like character departures, things that... Um, uh, things that uh, affect people and the things that still affect me um, is uh, Macbeth's soliloquy. Or sorry, sorry, not not Macbeth. Uh, Hamlet's soliloquy in Hamlet. Um, the 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 uh, uh, to be or not to be soliloquy. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, that's something that's quoted very often, but people don't ever really sit and think about what he is saying right. in that monologue. And when you do, when when you understand what he's saying, and when you when you get, get an actor that can particularly portray it, it is one of the most powerful pieces of literature in existence. Mm-hmm. And and it's the entirety of it is contemplating suicide. Yeah, it's 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 Hamlet to to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings of arrow of outrageous fortune, or take up arms against arms the sea of trouble and by opposing in them. them. Yep, that is talking about whether or not. You should die for a cause or to die for yourself. Yeah. Is the struggle worth it? Yeah. Is it, is it worth fighting when you're going to die anyways? And that question is one of the core questions told in storytelling over and over and over again, especially in, in things like Critical Role in Dungeons and & Dragons and, and RPGs, and is why people love these kinds of stories, because it's a mm-hmm. question we all, all of us, every one of us at one point in time in our lives asks ourselves that question. Yeah. And it's a powerful sentiment. And when performed correctly, when performed well, it can render an audience speechless. And it will always resonate. 
Yeah. As long as humanity is humanity, yeah. And that's why Wash had to die. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you so. had to ruin the mood. I did, I did. That's what I did. <laughs> um, we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out our website at financialfilms.com. You can also check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so there. Uh, thank you to all of our supporters, especially our $25 tier supporters, Chris Comfort and Nick Tonic. Without whom, we wouldn't be able to do quite as much of the stuff that we do already. We're at our $100 tier currently. Our next goal is $500. Uh, only $400 away from that. And that's going to be uh, getting uh, Jack here uh, fully on the payroll uh, via you guys to to uh, get him editing our sound, so you like Jack at the very least, and you like these audio, and these you like these podcasts to sound like they weren't edited in three minutes by a guy who's on his fifth margarita. Um, then uh, throw some money our way because that'd be appreciated. Uh, and we also like to thank the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about 411mania.com. 411mania.com is a pop culture site that caters to pretty much everything geeks are interested in. Whether you're interested in comic books, you want to see what the what the uh, latest stuff that comes out, if it's worth checking out. Um, all the, the, the latest news on the new Runaways comic that's coming. Or if you're interested in uh, music or wrestling, uh, anything WWE, Impact, NXT, uh WCPW, any any of all the way through uh, MMA uh, movies. If you want to know whether the new Mummy is worth seeing, uh, you can find that out. Well, it will already be up on the site by the time you hear this. I have Boiler a guess alert. about that one. It's not, according to our critic. Hey, who would have described it in an email to me? Uh, letting me know that the, that the review was 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 ready to go up as quote unquote bad, really bad, like battlefield bad or battle, yeah, battlefield battleship. bad, battleship bad. <laughs> That's magnificent. <laughs> yeah. That's um, some heavy. That's some heavy critique right there. I don't give a shit. I'm going to see it anyways. Um, but. Uh, if you want to see that, if you want to see reviews of of TV shows that are the uh, immediately after they air, or even as they're coming up, we will have a review next week of the new Glow series on Netflix. Um, check us out, 411mania.com. And, of course, we have all of uh, Final Show Films podcast, too. Yeah, and we appreciate them for putting our stuff up there. We appreciate you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.